Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning again to declare your worth, to glorify you and to hear your word. This morning we come with prepared hearts to submit to Jesus as Lord and respond to the Holy Spirit's direction in our lives. We have come together to pray as instructed by Christ when he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In doing so, we come to understand that you are a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of your will. We sing with the psalmist who declares that God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We concur with Job who through all of his struggles and sufferings declared with all confidence that I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours, God, can be thwarted. May that knowledge of a providential sovereign God bring us comfort and encouragement as we face the trials and sufferings and pains of life. Let us hold fast to the truth that you are a God who is in control at all times. May our faith not waver, and if it does, let us be reminded of your steadfast love that endures forever. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. The message is this morning is the faithfulness of God. As we go back to Genesis, in Genesis chapter 24, and I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 24. We will be there most of the message. We're going to look at Genesis, the faithfulness of God in providing a wife for Isaac. In Genesis, we find that God has been displaying His character through the world He has created and through His interaction with the human race. In chapters 1 through 11, the focus was on four great events, you may recall, creation, fall, flood, and the beginning of the nations at the Tower of Babel. In chapters 12 through 50, the focus is on four great people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Before we took our two-year break in Genesis, and I didn't realize, I for some reason thought we did Genesis last year, we did the first half, and they were going to finish it the next, but it didn't wind up that way. But we learned how God works through Abraham and his family to accomplish his purpose in sending a Savior to redeem the human race from the curse of sin and death that was promised in Genesis 3.15. The narrative of the story then had moved to the call of Abraham and the creation of the nation of Israel that will lead to the chosen seed, Jesus Christ, that we find in the New Testament. Keith Carell, who writes a commentary on Genesis, wrote that the focus of Genesis is on God's choice and care of His chosen people, Israel. Interestingly, we saw this before our break, is that three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, claim Abraham and Isaac as the father and foundation of their faith. He is the biological forefather of both the Israelites and the Arabian people through his sons Isaac and Ishmael. Before our break, we had been reading about Abraham and his journey in faith. 
we see that he was growing in his faith in steps. Sometimes he made hesitant steps. Sometimes they were half steps and even backward steps. Yet through it all, we see that he moves from imperfect faith to a growing faith to a mature faith. And we took encouragement and comfort in the fact that that's how our journey to God is also. He grew in his faith by learning biblical obedience to God's word. And the thing that you and I must realize is we need to be obedient to God's word. Now, biblical obedience to God's word needs to be these three things. This is free. This is from two years ago. But it needs to be complete without any compromise. And we see this sometimes. He, he wasn't always complete with his promise, but it needs to be complete. The biblical obedience is prompt without equivocating, without making excuses. It's something that is done. We also see that biblical obedience to God's word sometimes is painful and very risky. The last time you and I were in Genesis, we reflected on chapter 22, which is the famous passage with the test of Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham's son, the one through whom the promises would come. In that chapter 22, we saw the well-developed faith of Abraham after years of following God and his missteps. Abraham, through years of biblical obedience, learned to trust in the Almighty God of refuge and strength. We came away with the truth that you and I also must trust God even when his promises to us seemed delayed. Now you and I are going to finish the rest of Genesis over the next several weeks, chapters 24 through 50, and we're going to see the providence of God tends to be the major theme as we go through there. And especially with his dealings with Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, and Joseph. And that God's providence here is going to include diverse events such as marriages, birth orders, sibling rivalry, unjust criminal accusations, prisons, dreams, and even famine. And that's where we find ourselves this morning as we go to Genesis 24. Now chapter 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis and it tells of a beautiful love story. With that, let's ask God to join with us this morning. Father, we come before you to open your word and we thank you for the privilege and the great responsibility that comes with it. Prepare our hearts to hear what you have and Lord, may we listen to the Spirit, may we not quench the Spirit, but may we respond to it. And Lord, may we speak words that are edifying and building up and give us the grace and the discernment to know the difference between your words and man's mere opinion. We thank you for your sovereignty, your providence over us. We praise in Christ's name once again. Amen. So chapter 24, as I was saying, is the longest chapter in Genesis, and it tells of a beautiful love story. However, this love story is a little bit different than you might see in movies. It doesn't involve the couple's chance meeting at a popular coffee shop, or a fleeting glimpse across the room, or one of those, I hate him so much that I couldn't help but fall in love with him moments. There's no overdramatic encounter at a bus stop or an airport where someone's declaring their undying love so they don't go away. It doesn't include any of those scenes that you may find in a typical romantic comedy. But it does include love at first sight. This story involves an aging father who gives his faithful longtime servant 
one last command before he dies. His wish is for his son Isaac to be married before he dies. He does not want him to marry one of the local girls, so to speak. So he sends his servant back to his hometown and relatives to find a wife. Interestingly, it doesn't seem like the son is privy to this discussion or at least not very much consulted. In our scripture reading this morning that Landon read, we saw that the first scene in which he makes a promise and then he goes out. And I'd like to give you five observations of the rest of the chapter. The first one that we see is Abraham trusts God to provide a wife for Isaac. Verses 1 through 9 detail that love story that involves the providential work of God. It is a wonderful display of God's faithfulness to Abraham's obedience and Isaac's blessing. Isaac now here is 40 years old. When we were in 22, he was about 13, so this is some time over. He's 40 and he's single. Abraham does not want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman that might draw him away from the Lord, but he understands also that God has gave him that land, so he does not want him to go back to the land of Ur, to Mesopotamia, to live. Because we've got to remember that God's promise to Abraham will come through Isaac's descendants. So it's important that Isaac not only marry someone that is not from that land, someone who would draw him away from God, but also that Isaac must live in that land. So he makes the servant swear that he will not allow Isaac to leave Canaan, and he puts his hand under Abraham's thigh, which was an intimate way of making an oath at that time. I'm thankful that that's one way. We do not have to do that anymore. The trip back to the homeland to Mesopotamia was approximately 550 miles, taking at least 21 days with a caravan. Could you imagine traveling in that type of way? But Abraham still trusts God to provide a wife to Isaac. He's in his dying age, and he now has a very strong trust and faith in God after years of biblical obedience. He was able to test and see that God was true. And in there, you'll see that it was based on the steadfast love of God. The second observation I'd like to make is that the servant shows great faith in trusting that God will lead him. And I don't know if you caught that, and I think there's some good instances where we see in verses 10 through 27 as it details the servant's journey and his meeting of Rebekah. In verse 12, the servant, when he finally reaches Mesopotamia, when he reaches that city, he asks for divine guidance through prayer. When he says in verse 12, look at there with me, O Lord God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. What's interesting there is he doesn't pray just asking for some willy-nilly thing. And he bases his prayer not on some wish or hope that he has, but on the promise of God. And I think there's something important for you and I. When you pray, do you pray on the promise of God? Do you pray it based on the character of God? That's what the servant does. He doesn't say, just so I can get back home, but that your steadfast love for my master will be evident. He says in verse 13, look at this, this is interesting. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. And that day there would be a certain time of the day, and the women would come out to get the water. The men would have been out the fields, they might have been doing something else. It would have been the women's job at that time to go to the middle of the city where the well was, and they would draw it up and bring it back home. And he prays for something very different here. Very, I think it's kind of a unique request how he does it. Verse 14, 
He says, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say drink, and then also offer, this is my own words, I will water your camels, back to scripture. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. The servant simply is asking that God please provide guidance. Would you provide Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider? His prayer is based on God's steadfast love and covenantal loyalty to Abraham, not based on the servant's good wishes. The narrator informs us that even before the servant finished praying, a young woman named Rebecca comes walking up to the well. And she's described there in Scripture as very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom had no man had known. She had never been married. She was a virgin. The servant asked if she could give him some water, and she then willingly offers to water his camel. Now, you and I might think, well, wouldn't any normal person do that? Well, you've got to remember that a camel can drink up to 25 gallons of water at one time. And he had 10 camels with him. It was an immense and difficult task to give them water. It was usually there would be something almost like this, where they would have a big jar, and she would have to go down into like a, a little pit like this, draw up the water with a, with a bucket, pour it in her thing, pick up the container, go back up to where the camels were, and then to pour them. This task was something that would be very difficult. 25 gallons per camel, 10 camels. This probably took her, some have estimated, over 90 minutes or more of just filling these camels. Now remember, she's there just to get water for her family, but she winds up tackling a very difficult task. She definitely had a servant's heart, and during all this time, the scripture records in verse 21, look at it. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. It wasn't enough that she did part of his task. It's not enough that she said, well, I passed your test by asking to give water. There's one last test that needs to be done. And he would not be disappointed because after asking some questions, he found out that she was not only someone with a servant's heart, but that she was actually Isaac's second cousin, causing the man to break out in praise in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. He understood the relationship that God and Abraham had. And as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. We see here that God is working behind the scenes to fulfill his promise to provide a Savior that would come through Isaac and Rebekah and so on and so forth through their children. The servant here showed great faith in trusting that God will lead him directly where he needed to be. The third observation that I come away with is that the servant faithfully then shares Abraham's commands and wishes. And this is where we see in verses 34 through 39, it almost seems redundant. He goes through and he tells the whole type of story. I think it's pretty important for he repeats that God's blessing upon Abraham. Here's what's happened since Abraham left here. This is how God has blessed him. The servant has sensitivity and responsiveness to the Lord and he shares his prayer and he shares what happened. But then he shares the Lord's providential hand 
working behind the scenes and the fact that the one that he prayed for would not only be there, but would help him in the way that he had asked God to show him and direct him. The servant was all business, and he comes straight to the point in verse 49. For after he finishes, he sets down, he tells the story. He says, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand and to the left. 550 miles, 21 days with camels. This guy just wants to turn around and get done with whatever the task he has. He's faithful. So he wants to do what Abraham has asked him to do. Interesting, number four, the fourth one, is that the family responds positively to the request. Look at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord, and we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant had heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Whether they knew and worshipped the same God as Abraham, I do not know. But they did see the providential hand of God at work as he related the story. The servant immediately gives thanks and worship for the God. And he begins to give Rebekah and her family the customary dowry expected of the day. The rings, the cups, and so on and so forth. The next day, though, her family is hesitant to let her go. Maybe some doubt had crept in overnight as they began to think over what they had just agreed to. The servant, though, was adamant that he must return to his master quickly. The Lord had blessed him. The Lord had provided him. There was no time to dwaddle. Eventually, as they're hesitant to do so, they bring Rebecca into the conversation. And finally, they ask her in verse 58, Will you go with this man? If you were a young lady, what would you say? Would you say, I'm ready to go? Listen to her response. It's simple. She says, I will go. What a great testament to her faith and trust that God was at work. Again, whether she knew the God of Abraham at that time, I do not know. But she saw the hand of God at work. Could you imagine you and I doing that today? Could you imagine a stranger coming to your house and asking for your daughter's hand in marriage and agreeing to it? Would you think of, oh, these things are just coincidences? These things are just things that just random chances that just happen? In many ways, that's how we see life. But here we see a different view, a different worldview. But number five, I think, is the most important one as we come to it. Because we see that Isaac responds in faith by accepting and loving Rebekah. I'd like for you to turn there, but hopefully you're still there in verse 24. I'd like to read the rest of that chapter, starting in verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Berleroi, and he was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, verse 66. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Very love story. Probably not the one you and I would write. Probably not the, the one that we would desire. But he loved her. 
In this story, love actually comes last, not first. And I'm not to make a public opinion of which way we should go, but Keith Krell writes that romantic love is never the basis for marriage. For scripturally, instead, marriage is the basic for romantic love. That's why in Ephesians 5, scriptures Paul could write, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loved her last. It was not some emotional attachment, but seeing and bringing her comfort and love, seeing the hand of work. Now in this story, three people confirmed that it was a work of God. They saw that this was not just a, a matter of random chance encounters and things of that nature. They recognized that something special, something important was happened. In verses 15 through 16, the narrator himself says that this is the work of God. The servant in verse 26 through 27 speaks of it as the work of God. And Laban, her brother, confirms in verse 50 that is the work of God. Now we need to understand that now just because God was providentially moving all of this together in making him go out at a certain time, making Rebecca go to the well and having her be the one that answered the very prayer that he said, that she would wind up being a relative from the house of Abraham. Moving all this together did not mean that everything was hunky-dory. It doesn't mean that there was no tension in the story because the story is only good as the tension, right? And a story is good when there's some tension where something that has to be solved. In verses 30 through 49, we see the servant didn't know the reaction to his story. Could you imagine sitting in that tent and telling them, hey, I've been sent by your long-lost relative. He's told me to come here and get a wife. And so I said this prayer, and lo and behold, hey, your daughter and your sister was the one who answered it. And hey, by the way, I kind of want to take her with me now, 550 miles. You probably will never see her again. Is that okay? He had faith and trust in God, but you can imagine as you start to tell the story. Have you ever sat down in front of somebody? and try to tell them your worldview, or tell them your belief in Christ, or tell them why you come to conclusion based on God's word, and you can just see the blank looks in their faces, the confusion, and all of a sudden you start to doubt and question your own. Anybody ever been there? I have many times. It happens to all of us. But you know, he's straight. So there's some tension there. The family in verses 52 to 60 spends the night, but all of a sudden they're second-guessing their decision. They say, well... Uh, maybe we ought to keep her for a little bit longer. Maybe we need to, you know, come at this at a different angle and, and see what the benefit is. Now, they, they took all the, the goods, right? They took the dowry. They had no problem with that. But, yeah, you're probably second-guessing. Have you ever made a decision for God and said, oh, I'm going to do this, but yet overnight or it was some time you start second-guessing? Hey, should I go to seminary? Should I take this job? Should I do this? Should I do that? Yeah, we all do. Or the reaction of both Rebecca and Isaac when they met. Talk about tension there. What if Isaac looks at her and she says, oh, no, man, I don't like him. Or she looks at him and says, that's my master? I guess they're going to get married in those days, but could you imagine, would he love her? Would he care for her? We're going to see her son Jacob is going to have that problem in a couple weeks. When he gets a wife and all of a sudden he realizes, hey, this is not the one I want. So there's some tension in there. What I'm sharing is when God is at work, it doesn't mean that all things are going to be hunky-dory. That's Greek, by the way, for everything being okay. It doesn't mean that everything's going to work out. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be some pain, that there's not going to be some doubts. There's not going to be some struggles. Many times we feel like God is not at work because 
well, it's not as smooth as it should be. I feel like there should be some peace and there should be this and that. And sometimes, though, trusting and believing in God's hand can be very, very difficult. So here's what I want us to understand. As I said earlier in this portion, Genesis from 24 on reflects the hand of God in the lives of his people. As we look at Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and so on, I call this the doctrine of providence. Again, I'm indebted to Wayne Grumman and his systematic theology that tells us what it means when we say the doctrine of providence in which God is in control. Wayne Grumman writes that the doctrine of providence is that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way. He's continually, he's present. He never takes his hand off of all things. And he's in it involved in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties by which he created them. In other words, you and I, our hearts beat because of the providential hand of God. You and I, our stomachs and our bodies work in such a way. When death comes, that's God moving his hand away and the property doesn't state it. The reason why this is made of some type of material, we may say wood, but we also understand in a chemical world that you could break this down into other types of atoms and so on and so forth. And the thing that keeps us together again is the fact that he maintains the properties in which he created them. The second thing that we see with God's providence is not only that he keeps and exists and maintains them, but they cooperates with created things in every action. In other words, he's involved with them directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. In other words, why does it snow? Because he says snow. Why does it rain? Because he says rain. Why is there drought? Because he says no rain. That's what we need to see is that he cooperates. Some have a belief that you can just wind up the earth and he just allows things to go. Does the winds and the clouds bring rain? Yes, but what moves the wind? In Job, we see that all things start because of God. And then thirdly, we see that he directs them to fulfill his purpose. And here's what I want to share with you as we shove off into this Genesis, is you and I must come to understand the doctrine of providence, God's sovereignty. Charles Spurgeon wrote concerning God's providence, listen to this. Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher, normally known as the Prince of Preachers back in the 1800s, 1850s, 1860s in Britain. He wrote that, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. And that the creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. And then finally, the fall of leaves from a poplar tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. And I know there's many different thoughts and beliefs of God's sovereignty and God's providence over his creation. I will say personally, I am one who believes in a strong providential hand of God, maybe more so than maybe some today. But I'd like to share with you from Scripture that I believe that we have a God who is great and big, who is sovereign and providence 
over all things. Scripture tells us that God is sovereign over seemingly random events and things. Proverbs tells us that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And in that case, he's thinking about dice. You can throw the dice, but every roll of it, every fall of it, comes from God. Providence Scripture tells us that God is sovereign over the heart of the most powerful person in the world. Proverbs tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Think of a faucet, putting your hand in that faucet. It's going down, but when you put your hand in that faucet, what can you do with that water? You can turn it, move it, manipulate any way that you want. For it says he turns it wherever he will. It says God is sovereign over our daily lives and plans. Proverbs once again says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but its purpose of the Lord is what will stand. We see that he's sovereign over salvation. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is sovereign even over life and death. As Scripture tells us in Deuteronomy, See now that I, God says, even I, I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive. I wound, I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. The spiritual truth out of this love story in Genesis 24 is for you and I to see the providential hand of God in choosing a wife. For Isaac. In some cases, it might have said, well, it just was dumb luck that he happened to go to that well. And it was just by chance that she, Rebecca, went out at that time. And it was just some type of wishful thinking that he put out some tests and said, well, the first one who comes out, and if I say this, then they say that, then that must be the one that God wants. Oh, and she just happened to be relative that he was looking for and what we do is we think life works that way but i'm sharing with you the scripture says that god has for the foundation of the world has declared that there would be a christ in acts it says it was predetermined before that christ would die for the sins of man and he leaves nothing up to chance many times when you and i read the little genealogies you ever read the genealogies in scripture how many of you skip them? Okay, I got my hand up. Yeah. So sometimes we skip them. You say, why in the world are all those people, this person begat, this person, this person, why is that important? I'm going to share with you why. Because it shows the faithfulness and steadfast love of God as he works through history, genealogy, marriage, and birth to break a straight line from Abraham to Christ. And yes, we usually skip through them, but each person in there is a rainbow of God's promise of Genesis 3.15. You and I do not know their names, many of them. We don't know what they lived. Some lived godly lives of biblical obedience. Some others did not. But yet they're all there to point to the faithfulness and steadfast love of God. What I want to share with you this morning is God does not leave anything up to chance in his world. So if this is true, then what does it mean for me today? 
I may ask the question, should a father decide who their children will marry? I speak, not scripture. I say yes. Especially my daughter. But I would say, that's not the question here that's being asked. She's not here this morning, but I just wanted to make her sure she knew where I stood. But the question may be, should we make decisions like the servant? Should you and I just sit and make a prayer and say, well, let's see if this happens. Does that mean I pray and I randomly open a Bible and do what it says? Do I flip a coin to make decision? Or do I set out fleeces like Gideon? Is that what he's calling us to do since God is providence? If uh, Let's see, should I marry or should I not? Let's see, heads or tails? Oh, God is providential over that. Oh, tails, I don't marry you. I would not do that in front of your girlfriend or future fiance. That's not a good thing to do. The Bible has called you and I to make godly decisions. In this case of the servant, Abraham told him that God would send his angel before him. I don't know if you saw that portion of scripture. In those days, there was no written Bible for them to read. There was no priest even at those days. There were no prophets to mediate between God and his people. There was no Uman or Thurman. I always say Uma Thurman, but it's not that. It's, it's the lots that they would cast to see what God had decided. Scripture repeatedly shows that God sent angels and spoke in dreams and visions and other ways in those days to converse with his people. So the question may say, well, should we do that? If God is providential, then how do I know what God has decided or where God's hands work? Now, I want to share with you five ways. I think we're still dealing with this very mildly in our church and in a lot of our minds, is how does God then providentially work with his people. There is no well. We don't have camels. But I think if you go out and ask a woman and wait for the first one to ask, hey, can I fill up your car with gas? You're probably going to be waiting for a long time. So how do we understand? Well, I want to share with you five ways. First is God in his sovereignty uses everything to God according to his purpose and his plans. Yes, he can use camels. He can use water. He can use any type of thing to move and to direct us to his will. Also, in many and very ways, God can speak to his people and guide them with their conscious cooperation. And so there are ways in which God in the Old Testament would work with them consciously through angels and through dreams. Number three, though, this is important. For we now stand on the other side of redemption. We no longer have to wait for angels and visions and dreams. For the Bible in the last days, the Bible tells us that God has spoke to us by His Son. Number four, God speaks to us today by His Son, through His Spirit, in the Scriptures. And number five, apart from the Spirit working through Scripture, God does not promise to use any other means to guide you and I, nor should we expect Him to. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. For I know there are many people today that all dreams and visions must be how God speaks to me. Or I'm setting out a fleece. Or they're doing random things and saying, well, if I flip through this. I saw this the other day in a a Christian movie where someone said, God, what should I do? And she flips through the Bible, drops it, and she gets a smile on her face because God told her exactly what to do. Well, you know, you need to be careful from that. Because if I can say, Lord, I just don't feel good today. I don't know what to do. And I flip through the Bible and it says, and Judas went and hung himself. Is that what God's telling you to do? 
God, you want me to hang myself? When should I do it? And do not be delayed. Go quickly. That's not God working through Scripture. And many times, that's what we think that we're doing. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, speaking of Jesus, who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the very world because of sinful desires. In other things, He wants us to know all things through Scripture. All things that pertain to life and godliness are found through Scripture. Does that mean I can find a wife through Scripture? Yes, I believe you can. Now that doesn't mean just, again, dropping your Bible and finding a name and say, oh, Sarah, i got to marry a Sarah. Oh, I've got to marry a Rebecca or a Rachel or a Michael or some other name. Because some of those names are kind of wild. That's not what he's calling us to. But Scripture does give us information of how you and I can ascertain what His will is. For you and I to make godly decisions, we first must recognize and admit that God is sovereign. And that God's plan for the universe reaches down into the deepest and most personal confines of our lives. God's plan for our lives is for you and I to bring us to glory and union with His Son. To make us in the image of His Son and to make us glorified. This is the destination for all that are united to Christ by faith, regardless of the earthly paths that you and I need to walk to get there. The guidance that God so graciously gives for our lives is His own Son. Hence why Paul could say, imitate me as I imitate God. And that's what you and I need to do. And really, that's what the servant did. It wasn't so much his faith as he trusted in the faith of Abraham. The promise wasn't made to him, it was made to Abraham. And I'll give you an example. One I used to teach to the kids when I was a youth pastor years and years ago. My belief in God's sovereignty wasn't as strong and was a lot more diverse. I used to believe that God did not give you one person who you can marry. There's a whole collection. I mean, in 1982, when I graduated from high school, I was going to go to college in Florida. So I thought, well, hey, if I would have went to college in Pensacola, all my friends got married when they met there. I mean, that's usually where you meet your mate, right? I could have well been getting married, so there could have been a woman there that I would have been married. But since I instead decided to buy a motorcycle instead of going to college, I wound up meeting someone different. Well, what if I would have gone this way, gone into the Army or something like that, when I met someone else differently? And then, of course, then, you know, if I did that, I would have had different children. I wouldn't be here. But I come to realize through Scripture that that's not true. I truly believe that God has written before ages who I would marry. That one day I would meet Dawn Knight and I would marry her and we would have three children. Now, I didn't know that at the time. And so when we think about that, we say, well, no, 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 that could have been anyone. Well, think about it. If I would have met someone else and married another woman, I would not have Brandon Jacob. Emily. I would not have little Landon if he wouldn't have met Paige, my oldest son. See, God works through genealogies. And so when I look at it, I did not know who God had for me, but God knew. Psalms tells us 
that we are wonderfully and fearfully made, does it not? Does it not also say, I made you in secret, and all of your life I had written beforehand? How did he know that one day I would be the pastor here in Orange Villa? Because he declared that it would be so. And he worked his providence unconsciously and consciously to move me here. And so it's by no coincidence or accident that you're here this morning. For every moment is God's hand working on us. And so as we go through this, as Dustin and I take you through Genesis, we're going to show you God's plan when it comes to sibling rivalry, to children, to salvation, and even to the fact of human government and human events. Nothing is out of God's hands. So let me bring this down. In our passage this week, God providentially works to ensure that Isaac will have a wife that he needed. Not because he knew that Isaac needed a wife, but in order for God's promise of a Savior to come. You and I can be encouraged that this same God knows our needs, knows our desires, He knows our future, and you and I from this passage must rest assured that He is actively involved in our lives today. Amen? That is why we can proclaim boldly with Paul that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. It's why we can sing His purposes are good for me. I know that God has good for me in the song, Amazing Grace, my chains are gone. Let me end with this note. To those of you who are single, and you're wondering if you're going to get married, or who you're going to marry, trust God, for He knows. The sum, He's given the gift of singleness. The sum, He's given the gift of marriage. Trust God. The more you trust God, the more that He'll bring you your bride and you'll love her, or you'll come to accept the gift of singleness. To those of you who are married, trust God that He didn't get it wrong, that He put you with the person that He wants you to be with. Trust in the hand of God. If you have a wife, love her. If you have a husband, Submit and love them. If you're single, trust God and begin to be the person that God wants you to be. In all, giving praise and glory for the God for His steadfast love endures forever. Amen? I want us to take a moment to pause to consider what God's Word has shared with us this morning. And I'd like for you to bow your head and close your eyes. Would you pray? And if you would ask God, show me how I'm to respond this morning to your word. What is God calling you to do? In what way have you doubted the goodness of God? In what ways have you not trusted that God loves you? In what ways have you not trusted his promises? In what ways do you struggle with his providential hand? Respond to what the Spirit may call you to do, we ask this morning. Father, your response for the Spirit may be different for each and every one of us. For though your word is united in all that it says, and the truths are applicable to all of us, it may be applied differently in the lives here this morning. And I pray that it would be done, that we not quench the Spirit, but we embrace 
his difficult work that he has as he plows our hearts and makes us trust you more. Let our faith grow this morning. Let us trust and find comfort in your providence. And let's not let squabble or struggle at that loving hand. Guide us, direct us, Father. Let us see your goodness in all things. Lord, that helps us to understand why we do not murmur and complain, why we're to, to give thanks continually, and why we're to pray without ceasing. For your good hand is on us at all times. Let us trust you more this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, who is obedient to the point of death. We pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.